everyone, this is Wayne, and this is the Greenfield Podcast. And I'm recording this, and kind of a tough moment for me. I went through some serious personal loss, um, or I should say a personal loss this week. And you'll hear more about that later because I'm going to blog and probably podcast about it. But honestly, it's a good time to think about how we can create change and what can give us a lot of hope. And one thing that gives me a lot of hope is a rising climate movement and people like Alex Marquardt. Alex is an old friend of mine. In many ways, we grew up as activists together. I've known him for close to two decades, I think it is, maybe 15 years. And Alex is the founder of a group called the Climate Defense Project. And the Climate Defense Project is a group of Harvard Law School-educated lawyers who represent activists arrested for civil disobedience. And the thing about the Climate Defense Project that you've got to know is that they are the elites who do extraordinary work. But they're also people who understand that these elite institutions are often not the way change happens. Even at Harvard, it's not the people in power, it's not the people of wealth and influence who are necessarily driving change. It's the people at the bottom, in this case, the students, who were forced to sue their own university, sue their own university to finally get change. But, but here's the key bit. They got it. And, and I think there's important lessons for all of us, especially when we feel like we're in a powerful institution and we don't have a lot of power ourselves, that there's hope for all of us. And, and I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I do. So without further ado, here's Alex McCart at the Climate Defense Project. I'm really excited to have a very old friend of mine, Alex Marquardt on the podcast, who's a climate activist and attorney. And I thought I'd start this discussion with a quote from an op-ed in the New York Times by Ezra Klein recently. The title of the op-ed was, it seems odd that we would just let the world burn. And he's talking about a book and a quote from the book that I want to read to you before we even start this conversation, which I found both incredibly concerning, but also incredibly insightful. It was this, were we governed by reason? We would be on the barricades today, dragging the drivers of Range Rovers and Nissan patrols out of their seats, occupying and shutting down the coal-burning power stations, bursting in upon the Blair's retreat from reality in Barbados and demanding a reversal of economic life as dramatic as the one we bore when we went to war with Hitler. Now, setting aside the kind of dramatic Hitler comparison, I think this quote does capture the urgency that so many people feel, and, and frankly, that our planet should be feeling about the climate crisis. And I thought this is a good way for us to start the conversation about what's happened the last couple of weeks, specifically with George Taylor's case, which I know you and the folks at the Climate Defense Project are working on. So can we just start with you telling us a little bit about George Taylor and this case that, that you did some legal support work on? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, thanks for having me, by the way. Um, I think the Taylor case um, was... Um, a really unexpected outcome, but just to give some background on it, um, so George Taylor is a uh, Veterans for Peace uh, a person who is also a, a minister and a retired. Um, he has um, uh, a grandchild who goes to high school or used to go to high school in Spokane at the time of the protest, and um, one of the reasons he got interested in, in doing the protest, um, he had been working with um, some climate and environmental um, groups for some time. Um, but he became very worried about the risks of spills and explosions and those things that you hear about with coal and oil trains. Um, there was a especially bad one, I think back in either 2016 or 2017 in Canada. And um, so he, you know, after trying for many years to get the city to, you know, reconsider um, allowing 
trains to pass through downtown Spokane, you know, um, did this kind of nonviolent protest where he um, blocked the tracks um, after having, you know, notified the company about it and tried to choo- trying to choose a time where there wouldn't be trains, you know, actively on the tracks. Um, but so anyway, this is a track that was basically carrying coal, oil, coal and oil trains is okay. my understanding. Yeah. Um, and he blocked it with his body. Right. He just literally how did how did that unfold and just paint the scene for. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very common tactic in these direct action campaigns to sort of uh, people say, you know, put your body on the line. um, And that can mean different things. It's usually um, almost always nonviolent in the sense of, you know, you're not you're certainly not threatening uh, any people. Um, usually there's also no property damage. Um, it just means, you know, getting in the way of whatever is being constructed, you know, mm-hmm. that you might see as a threat to your community. Um, and so, um, or in the case of, yeah, coal and oil trains, whatever is being transported. So um, this was a case where Mr. Taylor, uh, originally there were a bunch of co-defendants, but he ended up being the person who wanted to go to trial to use what's called um, an argument called the necessity defense, um, which is essentially um, a legal argument that uh, is sometimes called the choice of evils defense, and it's where a defendant wants to say that what they did was justified by needing to avert a larger harm. You know, So sometimes minor lawbreaking might be acceptable, um, and there might be a legal justification for it if we think about you know what it was that the person was trying to accomplish. Um, and it's mm-hmm. a very old defense that goes back centuries. Um, In recent decades, people have used it in protest situations, um, starting with the Vietnam War um, and continuing through, you know, protests against nuclear weapons and and things like that. Um, And the climate movement started using it in the past uh, 10 years or so, a little more than 10 years. Um, And this is the first case we've had where a you know, state Supreme Court has kind of looked at all the evidence and said, yeah, we think that's actually a valid argument, and um, this person can go to trial yeah. with that argument. Which is an amazing victory that I feel like more people need to be talking about, because it's one of the few times one of our powerful political institutions has acknowledged two things about the climate crisis. One is that it is a crisis. This is a crisis as bad as a fire that's going to burn your home down because this is a fire that's going to burn our entire planet down. But second, recognizing the failures of our political institutions in doing about this. And this is the really interesting thing about this case, right? We have a court, in fact, the highest court in the state of Washington saying, hey, by the way, we kind of recognize that all your other efforts of trying to create political change have completely failed. And therefore, you're entitled to present this defense. So tell us a little bit about what the Supreme Court held in that regard? Because I thought that was one of the most fascinating things about this opinion. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, So there are different elements of a necessity defense. You have to prove different uh, things. And one of them, so there's usually three or four elements. They're usually that, you know, you were trying to avert some kind of harm that was more than whatever harm you caused by breaking the law. You have to show that there is a cause and effect relationship between what you did and actually averting that harm. And then usually in just about every jurisdiction, and this is on the books in just about every state, um, you have to show that you didn't really have a good alternative to breaking the law. Um, in other words, you know, when you're talking about a protest situation, um, you know, you need to put on some evidence that you tried other lawful methods of affecting the political process. Um, so in Taylor's case, he talked about, you know, 
I think you talked about testifying in front of some agencies, um, you know, attempting to write letters, um, you know, petitions, things of that sort. Um, and what was so remarkable about this case, I mean, usually courts are very skeptical of the argument that you didn't have effective access to the political process because no court wants to say that our democracy is broken. You know, I mean, courts are part of, you know, these institutions that we depend on and they want to believe in the legitimacy of, you know, the democratic process. Um, but there's a lot of evidence now and there has been growing evidence for years that, you know, the only people who really... Uh, are affecting the political process and getting their preferences enacted into policy are wealthy people and business mm-hmm. groups for the most part. Um, and so, you know, of course, people can vote, people can sign petitions and things like that. But when you look at sort of long term at the federal level and also at the state level, you know, what's the correlation between what ordinary people want and what laws are getting passed? You really don't see much of a correlation. It's really just wealthy people. Um, And so anyway, uh, this is a kind of evidence that a protester like Mr. Taylor would put on if he were to go to trial and make this argument. And you also have to make a kind of preliminary showing in order for the judge to say, yeah, okay, I think you have enough evidence, you can present it to a jury. Um, And so just about every every judge is going to not like that argument and in many cases um, deny the defense. which is sort of what happened here, but Mr. Taylor appeal, appealed the case, um, and now the Supreme Court has agreed with him. Yeah, and if for, for those uh, of, of the folks listening to this podcast who've never been in a courtroom, I mean, it, to me, it feels almost like the entire institution of especially criminal justice is basically intended to uphold the power and, and respect for authority that people have for our current system. You've got this judge in flowing robes. Everyone calls the judge your honor. And if you speak out of turn, they shut you down and move you out of the courtroom and throw you out and can even hold you in contempt. So it's, there's this almost psychological impact when you walk in the courtroom that I have to obey. I have to do the things that this powerful person is telling me. You know, I have to do them. And for someone in that position who's in this traditional seat of authority to say, hey, by the way, your respect for authority has failed. <laughs> you just have to kind of break the rules now. That is a tremendous outcome. And, of course, it's still Washington State. It's not Iowa or North Carolina. But still, I mean, what I've seen in social movements, having studied social movements for the past 20 years of my life, is that these court victories, whether it's Brown versus Board of Education or Brugefeller and the gay rights case, these court opinions have enormous impacts downstream. Because once people see, wow, even a judge, even a judge is saying that this is an emergency and our political system is a complete failure. It's only representing the elites and the wealthy, which that I think it's Martin Glenn's study. It's actually kind of controversial. We could talk about that for a second because I think it's interesting because it's a more complicated story than just policies dictated by the elites. A lot has to do with just the status quo. But setting that aside, it's really interesting that a judge would be willing to take that leap for the climate movement. And, um, and that's why I want to have this conversation with you because I want to understand how we got there, how we got to the point where... I think it was unanimous, right? Every single one of the Supreme Court. Are they justices in Washington or are they judges? I don't know what they're called. Probably justices? Yeah, justices of the Supreme Court. It was a 7-0 ruling. 7-0. You know, two members of the court who basically dissented on other, other grounds. Yep. Um, yeah. But nobody uh, objected to this particular ruling. Um, just to be totally, you know, precise and sort of lawyerly about this, I'll just clarify that, you know, the court didn't really... Uh, they didn't really have a firm opinion on whether they thought 
Mr. Taylor's arguments should succeed. It was really more of a sort of thing where a court is going to say, okay, we think you have enough evidence yep. yeah. to pass muster. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you can, you know, yeah. and I should be more careful, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's still a, a massive hurdle for us yeah. to overcome, but it's right. not like the judges endorse the action. He's going to be acquitted now. Right. We don't know yet. The judge just said, hey, there's like a compelling argument here that's sufficient for a jury to be entitled to hear the arguments and the evidence. But, right. you know, I think there are a lot of issues to me that that is the main hurdle you have to overcome. And I, I think you know, and everyone who's listening to this podcast knows that one of my big life concerns is banana rights and factory farming. And that's similar, where I feel like once you're able to talk about factory farming, once you get it on the table, that, hey, there are animals being ripped to pieces alive. There are animals living in cages their entire lives. And climate change is very similar. Hey, our planet's burning. And, you know, I, I was just listening to a podcast today about how the melting West Antarctic ice sheet might lead in the next five years, not in the next 50, in the next five years, if certain tipping points are, are hit, might lead to a 10 meter increase in sea levels that would put potentially, and again, this is, it might be a 5% chance, might be 1% chance, we don't know, but there, there's a real risk that our entire civilization crumbles, is destroyed by these risks, right? And and I think that the fact that judges are acknowledging that this is a sufficient emergency, that our, our juries need to hear this, and that when we get the opportunity you know, and, and present that sort of evidence, I, I can't imagine they're, gonna be, they're not going to be extremely sympathetic jurors who say, yeah, th- this person isn't a criminal. This person did the right thing. So we'll see. Yeah, it really depends on which part of the country you are in. Um, but, you know... My organization has always kind of taken the view that, as you said, the big battle is getting in in front of a jury. And then people should, you know, communities should be able to have the ultimate say over who's held guilty in these kinds of situations. And um, it's, you know, just a really basic principle of our criminal legal system that, you know, a jury of your peers gets to make the ultimate determination. Yeah, and it's a funny thing, too, because... (laughs) A long time ago when I was in law school, I actually thought the jury system was kind of stupid because I thought, well, this is really arbitrary. You just pick a bunch of random people and depending on who you pick or how good jury selection is, you could get a pretty arbitrary result. And that's still true. Mm-hmm. But what I recognize is it's still better than letting a judge decide. <laughs> There's just as much arbitrariness in the judge you pick and the judge you get. And judges are just so much less responsive to progressive arguments for change, in my view. Like, cause, because they're in the seat of institutional authority. Um, but I think, you know, we asked the question, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where people are breaking the law, laying their bodies literally on the line? I mean, was there actually any physical danger when, I don't know how familiar you are with the facts of Mr. Taylor's case, but was it this sort of thing where he could have been run over or hurt? No, no. no okay. So it was, yeah. it was done very safely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's still risking his freedom, clearly, you know, facing prosecution, potentially imprisonment. And I think the, the question that I want to start with uh, in this conversation, that I'm really fascinated, because I actually don't know the answer myself. Um, for those of you who don't know, I've known Alex for 15 years, something like that, 14 years, something around there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I've told you this before. I'm actually very surprised <laughs> where your life is taking you. Because when I first met you, you were, uh, I think you were no longer a, cla- a classical musician. You were kind of a, a former classical musician right. who was definitely progressive. I mean, Right. Even the fact that you're friends with me, you know, I was already not nearly as, as, as much of an activist as I am today. Actually, I was just as much of an activist, but certainly not engaging as much direct action. I mean, I think I'd, had I been arrested when I met you, I'd probably been arrested a couple times. 
Yeah, I, yeah. Don't, okay. I don't recall, but yeah, you were. Yeah, yeah. So I was already trajectory. an activist, but I, I didn't have the rap shoot I have now, right? I, right? I'm now facing, I think, 16 felonies. I've been arrested 20 sometimes, I think. Um, yeah. But but you were you were supportive, but you were not someone who had kind of jumped right. into that the you know quote unquote radical. I mean, I don't see it as that radical to be honest, especially when the world's burning. Uh, but you were you know I thought honestly going in the direction that in many ways you did go to going to Harvard Law School, <laughs> getting a, a reputable career and a <laughs> reputable law firm, and you went off and formed this thing called the Climate Defense Project to defend criminals and climate terrorists. Terrorists with quotes in my. Uh, I'm, I'm putting my quote fingers up for those of you who can't see us, which is, you know, all of you, because this is a podcast. But um, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about how you decided this is the direction you want to go in, because it's very easy for most of us to live our comfortable lives. It's a lot harder to make that decision. I'm going to be a part of this change. Yeah. Um, well, you're right. It, it was not something I anticipated when I went to law school. Um, I think you, your options when you're coming out of a place like Harvard Law are a little more limited than a lot of people like to imagine, at least if you're someone who wants to um, work on something that's going to really make an impact and and not just, you know, kind of become another cog in the system. Um, and so I had, you know, been thinking about ways of working on climate change. It's something I've been interested in since I was an undergrad. And, um, you know, were you an activist in undergrad? Cause you were at Northwestern. No, right? not so okay. much. Not so much. Um, it was really in law school in that, okay. well, I got involved with the, the fossil fuel divestment campaign, um, at Harvard. And that's where I met a lot of cool, you know, activist type people. Um, and I think that was really what determined, um, you know, my decision to start climate defense project after that. Um, there were two people in particular who were in my, year at the law school um, who were interested in uh, filing a lawsuit against Harvard over its fossil fuel investments. Mm -hmm. And um, it was one of those things that, you know, it was a good faith argument and it was colorable, but we knew that we were going to lose. But we did it anyway because we felt like it was important to kind of um, put the university on the record in that way. They had been really sort of stonewalling us. when we were just trying to meet with them, you know, and the lawsuit... Just suing them for their contributions for cli- to climate change. Yeah. For and continuing to invest in fossil fuel companies. And it, am I hearing you correctly in that Kelsey and Ted, at least, this, these are the other two co-founders, were they thinking about this even before they came to Harvard Law School? They, I'm going to come to this university oh, and no, then sue no. them. Because <laughs> that would be so awesome. They're thinking, no. They're going to let us in and then we're going to sue them. This is an idea that formulated after you well, all left. Okay. Not that I know of. Okay. Um, I, I think we hatched the idea in law school. But, okay. Um, so it was, it was um, a way of kind of making more real for us as lawyers in training, you know, what, what we could do with our law degrees. Um, and so afterwards, uh, after we graduated, uh, it seemed natural for us to kind of start something that would provide uh, a resource and and legal support to activists um, who, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that activists and lawyers are kind of natural collaborators, Mm -hmm. and um, you find them a lot of times working together in movements, but there's this big, I would say, divide culturally between what it means to be an activist and what it means to be a lawyer, and a lot of problematic thinking on the part of lawyers, I think, where they want to just kind of 
come in and call the shots and mm -hmm. have this kind of hierarchical relationship with their clients. Um, and we didn't want to be that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is so weird. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think that's almost entirely relegated to the place where clients or people are not powerful. Because when you're at a big law firm, you never worked at a big law firm, right? You didn't even summer at a big firm. Uh Correct. Yeah. I, I did some paralegaling a bit, but yeah. 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 Oh, that's right. You were a paralegal yeah, before yeah. law school, so you had maybe a flavor of that. A, but a flavor. Yeah. It's you're, you're right that lawyers do try to control their individual defendants in this weird way, and and partly because they're navigating a very difficult system, but partly because there is this again this traditional deference authority. Like the lawyers respect the judges, and the lawyers kind of expect respect to the authority of of of, of their profession, yeah. even with their clients, and and it does affect activism in this really problematic way because. A lot of activist camps, campaigns get shut down, you know, by lawyers who say, no, you can't do that. You're not going to do this. And, right. you know, sometimes you've got to break the law. So actually, can we back up? You know, you, you kind of fast forwarded to the end of your law school career and, and jump beyond what I think is one of the most fascinating campaigns at a university in the last 10 or so years, which is the campaign by a bunch of law students, including you. And I remember when you were devising this plot. <laughs> Plot is a good way of putting it, maybe. Maybe a bad way. But you talked to me about it, but uh, of suing Harvard when you were law students. But I want to back up even a step before then, because you're, I, I just, I want to really try and capture the mentality of someone who decides to start supporting climate disobedience and civil disobedience and various forms of direct action. Because you, I think, came from like a reasonably well off background. You know, certainly, I don't think, you were in severe economic distress growing up. You went to Northwestern. You were trained as a classical musician, very you know upper middle class sort of lifestyle. Going to Northwestern University, you know, one of the best universities in the Midwest, and then working at a para, as a paralegal. What kind of law firm was it? I think it was like a was it a real estate firm? I'm trying to remember what. Uh, business immigration. Business immigration. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then. You know, I'm just trying to understand how this switch happened and what it was. I mean, when you went to Harvard, first of all, how did you decide to go to Harvard originally? It wasn't because you wanted to do climate activism, correct? Uh, I knew that I wanted to use do my law degree to work to do something on good. something climate related. But, okay, cool. Um, yeah, beyond that, it was just sort of okay. where's where's the place I might meet cool people and okay, you know, the best school I can get into that sort of a thing. Yeah. And, and what, where, what was the moment where you decided, or was there a moment where you decided, hey, we have to be doing something bigger and bolder than what the environmental movement has been doing, and I want to be the lawyer who defends the activists who do this. Was there a moment, or was it more of a, like a gradual transition, and what was like your thought process in that transition? Because for those of you who don't know, um, Alex and I know this because we both went to somewhat elite universities. These elite universities are filled with people who are just trying to get money and prestige. <laughs> it's kind of terrifying. And it's... It's, it's honestly like one of the biggest scams in the legal profession is, I mean, and I, and I don't think it's because individual people are bad because a lot of people get trapped in golden handcuffs, but everybody writes personal statements about how, oh, I want to help, you know, juvenile justice. I want to fight for civil rights. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the other end and everybody works at a big firm or is, yeah. you know, working for the government in some way, in some prestigious position, whether it's clerking at some court or not that there's, you know, not something intrinsically wrong with any of these things, but there's just such a diametrically opposed reality to the aspirations that most people have when they get into law school. And it's crippling to so many people because you go in with these really high ideals and both the social environment is entirely about 
trying to get the best clerkship, trying to get a job at a fancy firm where you're going to get paid $200,000 a year. And you just don't know how to, to make a path for yourself. You're someone who does believe in purpose. And um, I want to try and understand how it was that a group of you managed to do this because I didn't manage to do this when I went to law school. I went to law school thinking I want to do like environmental animal rights stuff and I just got run over by the system and didn't have any friends, didn't talk to anyone other than a couple of faculty members. So I don't understand both the mentality of you and the other individuals who started. I think it was just called Divest Harvard. Is that what it's called? At the time it was called Divest Harvard. They've since okay. uh, put fossil fuel uh, in front of that to specify that there are cool. other... Okay. Know, knowledge there are other divestment in how you ultimately created enough power and support that not only did you have a group of students who decided to sue harvard and say we need to get out of the fossil fuel business we actually had some faculty support too which is i know it wasn't a lot but it's still pretty amazing that you had faculty members saying yeah let's sue our own institution so i mean what just walk me through you walk into harvard law school you're sitting in your 1l class looking at all these super fancy people from all these fancy undergraduate universities with fancy futures, and you all decide, actually, let's give it all up and go defend climate, you know, climate activists who are getting arrested. What's what's the what's the process there? Um, you know, there there was no light bulb moment. Um, it, it was a gradual evolution where, you know, I was just uh, associating with people who sort of felt similarly to me and mm-hmm. sort of their critical stance towards a lot of these things. And at Harvard, there has long been a very robust contingent of both students and faculty who um, want to understand sort of why law school is so messed up and tends to, as you say, kind of turn out people who are just working for the system. Um, I think, I actually don't blame most people who go and work, you know, big law jobs or, or you know, work at, in corporate law. Um, Thank you, I, because I, I did that. <laughs> I mean, I honestly think that most people just really need to pay off their loans, yeah. and I don't, uh, I don't blame them Absolutely. for yeah. feeling that urgency. Um, it's kind of the way that law school um, sets people up. Um, there's kind of this, um, I don't want to call it, you know, uh, some sort of intentional thing, but, you know, the firms give money to the law school and the law school in turn kind of <laughs> gives people all this debt, which they then need to pay off. Um, yeah. And so anyway, there's a lot of sort of interesting, critical stuff going on at Harvard while I was there. I think that might also have been a reflection of the time, the years that I was at Harvard Law School. You were in law school much earlier yeah, when I would say activism was kind of at a pretty low point mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have like the Black Lives Matter movement, you yeah. know, kicking into high gear. So it was just a really different time. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is pre-Occupy, right. obviously pre-Sunrise, pre-everything. And just, just there wasn't a lot of activism of any sort happening. I mean, yeah. it was it was very much a dead time period. It was just kind of like, I mean, this is like the post 9-11 time period where people felt the crisis facing this country was Islamic terrorism. We've kind of seen over the last 15 years how that focus has turned out. Not so good for right. really anyone. But it was a different time period. I still think, because I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I've talked to a lot of people over the years. I mean, I was very briefly a faculty member at Northwestern School of Law. Um, I've talked to the faculty members even about their experience in the 1960s. And one of the, one of the things that struck me most when I was in law school about just how conservative the institutional law is, including law schools, and, and I think money and this traditional deference to authority that exists within the legal system is, is a big part of it was I talked to this guy named Jeff Stone. He's a pretty famous constitutional law scholar. 
Um, and he was, I think, the president of the American Constitutional Society, which is the progressive legal organization. You know, you have the Federalist Society that all the conservative judges are part of, and the ACS is kind of the counterpart. And Jeff Stone, when he was in law school, he went to the University of Chicago in the 1960s, you know, in the height of Vietnam. And I've seen some pictures of him from the 1960s. He's like this long-haired hippie, you know, probably smoking a huge amount of weed, doing all sorts of crazy shit because mm. it's the 1960s. And he's a young, you know, law professor. He's like a hot shot and, and writes a lot of progressive stuff about free speech at the time when the free speech room was exploding and people getting arrested for protesting the Vietnam War. And even Jeff Stone, when, when I asked him, tell me about your experience as a faculty member after you became a faculty member, when you got out of law school and you became a faculty member, and, and how you perceived social justice movements, one of the things he told me, I, I, I think it was him, it might have been another professor, but I, so I'm, I may be jumbling stories, but I'm pretty sure it was Jeff Stone who told me this. He said, when, I'll give you an example of how conservative the legal, the legal system is, and you know, I was just like long-haired hippie who, you know, fought for free speech in the Vietnam War, when a, an LGBTQ organization, a gay rights organization, first applied to be a student organization at the University of Chicago Law School, I think in like the 1970s or something like that, 1980s, and my first thought was, you, you're basically asking us to form a criminal syndicate, you know, mm-hmm. that this is going to be a criminal syndicate, and, you know, I don't think he supported it, and I think most people didn't, and um, I think it's just, it's very easy to for all institutions, including legal institutions, to jump on movements bandwagons once they've created real power. And certainly by the nineteen sixties, you know, after the civil rights movement and and the grassroots power that was demonstrated by that movement and then that channeled into the anti war movement, anti war activism was was kind of a popular thing by the nineteen late nineteen sixties. I mean it, it mm-hmm. brought down presidential administrations, frankly, you know? Um, but it's a lot harder for for these institutions to think forward and say, what's the next movement? And the thing that's been astonishing to me about the climate activism in law schools and within the legal profession is it does genuinely seem forward thinking. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very much moving out ahead of things in a way that we historically haven't seen within legal institutions. Um, there was like a professor who supported you all on this, right? Uh, are you allowed to talk about uh, that? Or? I, I wouldn't say that anyone supported us publicly, actually. Okay. It was more behind the scenes, and there was a lot less support than we had hoped for, actually, okay. um, which has been the case for any number of yeah. student campaigns, uh, including the racial justice lawsuit from the early 90s. Um, it's just not something that many professors are willing to stick their necks out for, even when they're tenured. Can so. you say publicly who it was now? I'd rather not. <laughs> That's okay. Why do you think it is that so few professors... You know, it's interesting. Even in the... The amicus brief you submitted for for George Taylor's case, I was like looking at the list of professors who signed on to it, yeah. and it was astonishing to me how few professors from elite institutions signed on to this. Because this is yeah. such a compelling argument that, frankly, has gotten a lot of good mainstream media attention. You know, you've got the Nation, right? I mean, flagship progressive publication publishing an op-ed from you about the necessity defense and how important it is for people to get behind this. And widespread scientific recognition about, about the uh, divestment complaint. About yeah. the divestment complaint. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. that's. I'm sorry. This is that's different. Okay, I'm, I'm no, confusing right. two things. But still, the necessity of defense and climate activism. Yeah. I mean, there, there has been a lot of public support for this, and yet when you look at and, and and this is almost a demonstration of why I think grassroots activism and populism is important because when you're at this position of authority where you're at the top, it's really hard to change that entire power structure and challenge that entire power structure. Just led to you being, you know, a professor at Harvard. Um, 
I don't know, but what are your, I mean, what were your thoughts as a student trying to get some of these faculty members to sign on? What do you think it was that led them all to kind of jump ship? <laughs> um, you know, again, this was not um, a lawsuit that anyone thought we were going to win. Um, it was debatable uh, kind of whether there was a justification for bringing it in the first place. A lot of lawyers are worried about setting bad precedent mm-hmm. when you have arguments that are a little out on a limb. Um, our thought was that, you know, somebody's got to start making these arguments. And uh, to the extent that you can bring a whole movement in with you and get people excited about using the legal system, maybe it is worth it. Um, but, you know, we, we had complicated thoughts about it, too. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not surprised that we didn't get a lot of faculty supporting us. As far as the signatories on the amicus, you know, um, we have had some people from Ivy League schools sign those before. Um, it's more, I think, a, a reflection of kind of who's in the network of the person mm-hmm. who sends it around for a signature. Mm. Um, but you're right. Uh, I do think there's a little more, it tends to be a little more representation from people at the lesser known schools. Yeah. And I think that's true in the student bodies, too. As someone who's done a lot of outreach on various issues, including climate change and animal rights, what you find is the elite institutions, people are surprisingly more conservative. Right. You know, um, right. Despite the progressive reputation and all the smearing of Ivy League universities you see on Fox News, I always think to myself, wow, I mean, if you really understood the way Harvard or the University of Chicago operate, Fox News would sort of understand that in many ways, because people at places like Harvard and the University of Chicago and Berkeley are in many ways in positions of privilege, oftentimes are not as receptive to demands for radical change as people who are struggling and, and really facing a lot of hardship. Um, but tell us a little bit more about this lawsuit. What was the argument, and how did people respond uh, to the campaign when you were at Harvard? So you file a lawsuit against Harvard. What's the claim? And Well, uh, that lawsuit, again, I, I, I don't think it's the most interesting thing to, to kind of go into detail. Uh, I will talk a little bit about uh, the claim. There were two claims. One of them was sort of a very inventive tort claim. Um, the other was based on kind of the charitable duties that all educational institutions and other mm-hmm. public charities have to abide by. Um, there are uh, fiduciary duties um, that you might, you know, most people have heard of because they govern private trusts as well. So like duties involving prudence or loyalty, things like that. Um, but then there's also the duty just to abide by the charitable purpose. So mm-hmm. in Harvard's case, um, you know, this would have been, yeah, are these investments kind of furthering our mission as an educational institution and advancing knowledge and the pursuit of truth in the world, you know? And um, that's something which is, uh, again, uh, sort of at the forefront of uh, our minds right now at Climate Defense Project because we've been um, filing complaints. Uh, so not lawsuits, but complaints with state officials, usually attorneys general, um, you know, asking them to look into these investments at different universities. Um, and surprisingly, this time around, um, the lawsuit did not, you know, not, not many uh, people seemed interested in replicating that strategy. But um, this strategy of filing complaints with state officials has been surprisingly popular. And yeah. um, we've had a lot of interest from different schools. Yeah. And the basic argument is there's a trade off. I mean, you, by being a, a, a charity and getting tax exempt status, you're not supposed to do things just for the profit motive, just to make money for yourself or your stakeholders. You're supposed to be achieving some public good. And exactly. destroying our planet is, is not really in the interest of the public. Um, how, when you first filed this lawsuit, when you start bringing these complaints, I mean, you're a Harvard Law School graduate, you're part of the Harvard community. 
How do you think people within these institutions, like were students supportive of this or were they kind of annoyed at you? And how did it feel like after you filed this lawsuit and became public, just walking around in Harvard? Um, yeah, it was, it was divisive, I would say. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of people who were on the straight and narrow path to big law who couldn't care less or didn't, didn't really like what we were doing. And then there were a lot of people who were more lefty types who uh, so, were into it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever talk to the president of Harvard? The president at the time was Drew Gilpin Faust. Is that, is right. that her name? Yeah. Did she ever talk to you after you filed this lawsuit, or did she just say no? Yeah, I mean, not to us directly. Are. I mean, the students who were part of the primary, you know, fossil fuel divestment campaign had, had sort of had indirect conversations with her office and other uh, university officials, but uh, we were kind of an offshoot. The lawsuit people. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. And you said now that there have been multiple attempts like this, filing complaints at the attorney general, not lawsuits in this case, and and in Massachusetts and in other states too? Yeah. So again, the lawsuit was not a strategy that so far has been replicated, but there has been a lot of interest in trying to get state officials to hold these institutions feet to the fire yeah. and live up to these obligations they have. What's really interesting and what we've discovered since we've started working on these complaints is that the actual laws that set out these charitable duties um, have almost never been used in many states, uh, if not never. Um, there's this law that uh, is called the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act, and there's a version of it on the books in just about every state. Um, and it's sort of what you said. It, it basically uh, regulates charities um, with the expectation that you know, if you're not paying taxes, then you do owe some duties to the public um, and need to further the public interest. Um, and so this is a law that we've been using with these complaints. And um, when you look at something like charitable investment, you know, it's an area where uh, people have been, state officials have been really reluctant to meddle or intervene much um, up until now. Um, and, and really still, that's still the case for the vast majority of things. I think we're seeing a little bit of a sea change now only because fossil fuel investments are such a bad financial bet in a mm -hmm. way that they didn't used to be even just a few years ago, yeah. right? Um, I mean, actually, they've been performing poorly for about a decade, but it really became evident a few years ago. Um, and that was always the kind of... Um, you know, the backstop, that was always like the argument that people fell back on, you know, is that, well, we don't have to, you know, politicize our endowment or think about it in the same way that uh, an activist might think about it. We just want a good financial return mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, provide scholarships to people and support our programs. Um, but actually that argument, you know, increasingly looks like a bad one as well. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, the complaint also um, tries to bring out a lot of the other effects of fossil fuel investments that are relevant to campuses. Um, you know, Harvard's own research shows that a portion of its campus will probably be underwater by the end of the mm -hmm. century. And there are so many less tangible uh, impacts when it, when it comes to things like environmental justice and, you know, social equity, but also um, kind of what does it mean to be an educational institution? And when you have companies that are funding programs, uh, anything from individual researchers to entire departments. Um, what does that mean for just kind of like freedom of academic uh, inquiry and sort of the integrity of these, these programs? Um, there's been a lot of uh, kind of 
research that has called into question the idea that you can ever have, you know, sort of industry-funded studies that are not sort of subtly, where that's not, you know, having some sort of subtle influence on the direction of of where things are going. Um, So that's uh, something that we tried to bring out in our complaint. You know, it's a really big prize for an oil company um, like Chevron or BP to say that, you know, they have, you know, a research program that they're supporting at Harvard that, uh, you know, advocates for such and such a policy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's the one that they support as well, you know, and it, it's just a very big prize for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the recent example that Project Veritas came out with, which I imagine you've probably heard of, is this example of an ex-bond lobbyist who was saying, oh yeah, we've been publicly supporting this idea of a carbon tax because we know it's going to fail. You know, we know this is completely politically infeasible. And I think you were talking about the, how the financial returns on fossil fuel companies and the, you know, the fact that big money is moving away from this is, has been making our work a little easier. Like, I'm almost of two minds on that because in many ways, I think it's a great thing that Larry Fink, who's one of the richest people in the world, and he writes this global letter to all the financiers and all the people on Wall Street. I think he's the head of, what is it, BlackRock? I think so. Yeah, yeah BlackRock. And, you know, he's like a progressive banker, but he's still a banker. I mean, he's a owner of, the, I think, the largest hedge fund in the world. So he's he definitely part of the jet-setting crowd. In his, I think it was his 2020 letter, he writes this annual letter that everybody in banking just obsesses over because it literally moves markets. He sends out this letter and the markets change because partly because he just has so much money. You know, he can, he can change the markets himself. But I think it was his 2020 letter, maybe it was his 2019 letter, where he said, climate risk is now a financial risk. All investors need to take into account how their portfolio is affecting climate change, not just because of the ethical and environmental arguments against climate change, but because partly due to the the power of the climate movement that's been rising over the last couple of years, these companies are real financial risk. You know, they could be collapsing in the next five to 10 years if there's regulation or grassroots direct action, whatever it is. And that all is fine and good. And I shared it just like everyone else and cheerleaded. Oh, Larry Fink is at our side. But I thought to myself, I was like, wait a minute. Why, why are we cheerleading Larry Fink and BlackRock? And why, why are we not recognizing the grassroots activism that force these powerful financial institutions to get to that point? And if it really is the case that we're only going to make these decisions when they're financially viable, and we're going to still concede the argument that the only thing that matters is whether these investments are, pro- are profitable or not, we've kind of still lost the game in the long term, right? Because to me... And, and this is one of the reasons, and I'll get to this in a bit, or, or ask you about it, one of the reasons why I think the animal rights and the environment movement are, are linked, because both of them, if they're going to be successful, are not just asking for a change to specific practices. We're asking to re-envision the purpose of government and civilization. Right? Is it really just about profit maximization? Is it really just about economic growth? Is it about having more things and more widgets and more factories that pollute the air and the water, that kill and poison our environment and our own children? Or is it about something else? And I, I worry sometimes that to the extent we make those arguments and to the extent we concede power to people like Larry Fink and, and make it too important for us to listen to what someone like Larry Fink says, we're missing out on you know, the grassroots activists who really are, are to me, the hope for the future. Um, I guess this is kind of more of a debate about neoliberalism, right, <laughs> than just about climate change. But... What are your thoughts on that? I mean, what do you, what do you think about the climate movement's 
kind of positionality in terms of there's all these people in tech and investments and government and positions of traditional economic power that are shifting towards climate. I mean, Elon Musk, right, is a hero of many climate activists. So I guess maybe one way of putting it to a head is, is Elon Musk your hero too? Or do you question kind of the extent to which we're basically resting all of our hopes on people like Elon Musk to change the world for, for the climate? Oh, certainly, certainly not. <laughs> certainly not resting my hopes on Elon Musk. Um, no, what do you think I mean, of him? Oh, I, <laughs> you can tell the truth. <laughs> I have. I. I don't know enough about the I guy. Don't? I try not okay. to follow news about Musk or Bezos or any of those people. Yeah, um, it's just, it's not worth my time. But anyway, um, <laughs> to your question, I mean, I think, you know. There is a real danger anytime a movement becomes just successful enough to, to go mainstream of, you know, kind of being co-opted by uh, mainstream institutions and, and power structures. But um, when it comes to kind of climate, I do think that it is precisely because of the successes of social movements that things are starting to shift. Um, there's also just the fact that the impacts are so much more evident these mm-hmm. days, um, and that's the scary part. Um, but I think, you know, people have been talking about technological fixes for a long time. That's nothing new. Um, it, it's unfortunately, I think people are relying more than ever on this hope that we'll somehow be able to suck carbon out of the atmosphere yeah, and these other things, which, you know, maybe someday. I don't think the to- te- technology is there yet. Um, but, you know, there's always been that contingent of people who just want to make it about technology yeah. and some kind of silver bullet like that and don't want to talk about yeah. the politics and things like equity and mm-hmm. distributional mm-hmm. concerns. Yeah. Um, and we just have to make money a different way, right? Right. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of the argument. Yeah. Um, but I think it is very encouraging that the movement has gone so global and we've got, you know, why don't we talk about Greta, Greta Thunberg instead yeah. of uh, Elon Musk? <laughs> people or, like Elon Musk. No, you know, I mean, she's just phenomenal. She and, is. Um, I think having people like that, you know, it's really a generational shift at this point. I feel like if the younger generation were to just suddenly kind of take the place of the people who are in power right now, um, the world would look very different. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think about all these geoengineering solutions? You just mentioned sucking carbon out of the air. They're really controversial. I just listened to a podcast where Al Gore, he described it. I'm going to use an ableist term here, but he described it as insanity that we're even considering these things. But I mean, what, what's your take on that? I mean, these solutions range from kind of building concrete that's going to suck carbon out of the air to injecting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere to block the sunlight from the sky. And I mean, do you have a take? I know, I know you're not a scientist, so maybe you don't have the expertise, but I'm just curious what your take is and what do you think grassroots activists generally think of these measures I think activists tend to have a dim view of them yeah, I think that's right um, but I wouldn't discount um, their ability to kind of capture people's imaginations including people at the highest levels of government I mean it's not exactly uh, you know we're we're engineering mm-hmm. you know we're engineering food at this point and, and I think you know, we we're long since past the point where we have you know too many trepidations before kind of fundamentally changing something about the the environment or the way that we feed or, or clothe or transport ourselves. So yeah, you know, yeah, I think the most promising scientific alternative is also the most terrifying for me, and that's 
basically blocking the sunlight in the sky because the problem is is twofold. One is it's not really reversible. Once we start injecting sulfates and sulfur dioxide into the air, I mean, one of the theories for why the dinosaurs went extinct is a volcano basically did that and killed yeah. almost all life on this earth. And we'd be kind of be doing something similar to that. And it's scary that we could do something that's irreversible. It's really hard to reverse. But secondly, we just don't understand the dynamics, right? When you start blocking out a significant percentage of the sunlight, it affects plant life. It affects, it affects you know, ocean currents, wind. It affects everything. And yeah. we just don't have the best record as a species of intervening in natural systems in these dramatic and powerful ways in a good way. Um, but at the same time, like I understand why people are thinking about these things because, you know, it's funny because in the United States, we, we often complain about Donald Trump coming out of the, the Paris Accords, which totally legitimate complaint. And we say like, Oh, if only we were like Europe and then you go and look at the numbers in Europe and it's like, they're terrible. <laughs> they're not hitting their targets and no one is reaching their goals at the same time that climate change science is getting worse. You know, every year we're getting new data. I was just talking to Ronnie and you briefly about like some new data from the West Antarctic ice sheet showing it's, it's decreasing much, much more quickly than we think. And it's because of these things called positive feedback loops. And that's a very inapt name for something that's very much not positive. It's, it's basically a tipping point where the ice is melting in the West Antarctic because there's less ice to reflect sunlight, which you know normally when there's ice cover reflects, I think, 90% of the sunlight back in the atmosphere. And so the sunlight is more or less harmless. While if you have land or ocean water, it's capturing something like 90% of that heat using the greenhouse effect. And so basically what it does is the more ice that melts, the faster climate change gets. And that melts even more ice, which makes climate change faster. And under some scenarios, if the Antarctic ice sheet in the West Antarctic hits a tipping point, we could see a 10-meter rise in sea level, possibly within the next few decades, not in the next century. You know, you talked about how Harvard could be underwater in the next century. This could happen in the next decade or two, right? That's terrifying. That's terrifying. And at the same time that the climate change research is getting worse, and there's more research on these so-called nonlinear dynamics, governments are in many ways not hitting their targets and moving more slowly. And the Trump administration was one example of that, um, which is why people need to get arrested, frankly, and, and why I think the work you're doing is so important. Um, but sorry, I was a little bit of a tangent. What do you, when you ask yourself now, what makes you most hopeful? Is there anything, we've talked a lot about the failure of the political system and how terrifying this future looks. What gives you the most hope, if anything? As, as a climate activist? I uh, try not to dwell on kind of the state of things and what might or might not give me hope right now. Yeah. Um, huh. Honestly, it's it's a very kind of scary place yeah. that we're in right now. And um, I actually don't consider myself that much of an activist these days. Uh, I kind of just a lawyer, you know, working with activists. And I, I uh, it's it's kind of poignant, you know, to see people getting out there and getting arrested. And, um, I think they really are brave, brave people and are doing the right thing. And I can only hope that by representing them or doing other things with my law degree that I'm making as much of a difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the climate movement, um, gives me hope. Young people give me hope. Um, and the fact that, uh, the impacts are so much, 
uh, more severe than we thought they were going to be at this point. Um, you know, that's not exactly something that is, uh, a, a, it's not good, but it might push us um, to where we need to be. Um, so, I will yeah. disagree with you on this one because I, I, having worked with a lot of lawyers over the years and seeing how important lawyers are to the movement and how hard it is to work with lawyers who don't understand the broader movement context, legal work is crucial. <laughs> and having lawyers who understand the needs of activists and not just criminal defendants is, is game-changing. It really is game-changing. Because there's so many cases where lawyers are basically telling you can't talk, you know, don't get arrested again. You know, it just almost kind of domesticating the activism, like harnessing it for the purposes of the lawyer, which is just to get someone off, right. and not the purpose of the movement, which is to achieve political change. And, and because lawyers are in this position of authority and because actually one of the, the things I've learned from being an activist um, that I think most people at places like Harvard, New York, Chicago or Northwestern don't understand is just how hard it is to even find a lawyer, right? Because when you're in law school or you're at a, a law school teaching, you're just surrounded by lawyers they're everywhere and it just feels like, oh, there's too many lawyers and it seems so easy. And the same thing is true of big firms. Like when your clients are multinational corporations that have billions of dollars, it's like they can pick and choose what lawyers they want. You know, they go wherever they want and they just pay $800 an hour. But for the ordinary person who is even just suffering from some personal struggle, like, you know, a family member just died. I actually had an experience with this recently with someone who was a supporter of ours in the campaign. Like they had a family member die and there was this massive dispute um, within the family and like no one could find lawyers and they can't really resolve it. And it's, it's incredibly difficult. Someone who's facing a violation of the civil rights as so many people have faced over the last couple of years, especially, you know, black folks in this country or a climate activists who says, you know, I've tried everything. I, I tried begging and pleading. I've tried educating I've tried emails, I've tried making movies, I've tried everything I can, and nothing's worked. Someone's just got to stop this, like physically if necessary. And then when they do it, their lawyer is telling them, you can never do that again, and you can never talk about why you did it. How deflating that is, and how that destroys the momentum of a movement. One of the reasons we started DXE, this grassroots animal rights network I founded, um, actually, Ronnie was sitting right next to me in 2012, was because the movement had been domesticated. And one of the reasons it was domesticated was because when a bunch of people got arrested, including some close friends of mine, and spent years in prison, they did not have good lawyers. They didn't have lawyers who supported them, who understood why they did what they did, who helped support other activists and continuing to do the work. They always just said no. <laughs> that was like the answer they got over and over again. And the folks ended up in prison for a long time anyways. And if you don't have people like you, and this is why I support your work so much and why I very much see it as activism. If you don't have lawyers like you who understand why people are doing this and encourage them to do more of it, then the movement is going to fail. 100% it's going to fail. So we fucking need lawyers like you and Kelsey and Ted so much, so much, because I know what it's like now on the other side of things. I'm, I'm a defendant in seven different cases. And again, I'm super privileged. Like I'm a former law professor who has all these law professor friends. I'm friends with you, Harvard Law School graduates. I worked at big law firms. I have these big pro bono networks. And even for me, it's been hard. And if it's hard for me, as privileged as I am, imagine how hard it is for people like George Taylor, for, for the people at Standing Rock, right? These folks need people like you so, so desperately. And that's why every time, I know I don't support you all nearly enough, and I'm sorry for that. I always apologize to you. I'm not doing more for, to help you and the activists you're helping. But 
But the legal work is activism. And, and so is everything else because movements are ecosystems. They're not just about the people on the front lines. The people on the front lines often, frankly, get too much attention. And this is why like, I love Greta too. But we have to understand Greta is who she is because of literally millions and millions of people who also are speaking those same words and believe in that same mission. If there weren't so many people to amplify her message, she'd just be a kid who skipped out on school that no one would know about. But it's like all of you listen to this podcast who say, you know, I believe that too. It's the people who donated $5 a month because they say, you know what, I can't go out there and strike on Fridays. I can't stand at, on a train track and block that train with my own body because uh, I've got kids or I've got a family member I'm nursing or uh, I'm an undocumented immigrant and I can't take that risk because I'll be thrown in this country and then what good am I to the movement? But I can contribute 5 bucks a month. Everybody is part of this. And everybody who's supporting these movements is an activist to me. So, sorry. I'm just going to push back a little bit. But, but I will say, like, I, I've, I've talked to you a lot about this personally. Like, there have been a lot of ups and downs. I mean, as, as inspiring, I mean, to me, as an external observer of the climate movement, it's just all inspiration because I'm just like, whoa, look at all this awesome stuff. But, you know, as someone who's on the inside, as a lawyer, and, I mean, you're hearing your client's most confidential concerns, there's, like, a lot of ups and downs. So, you know, I wonder if part of the reason you don't see yourself as an activist, and you should correct me on this if that's true, is because there are these, like, huge ups where you win a victory, like the Washington Supreme Court case, you know, we just won a couple of weeks ago, or I should say the climate movement won. And then there are a lot of downs, too, where you lose cases, people go to prison. And were you involved in the Iowa case where those couple of activists got, like, eight-year prison sentences? Uh, we've not been directly representing them. Okay. Um, but we're working on the case at the moment, but not as their legal okay. counsel. Like, I mean, how do you handle, I mean, that was sort of a scary case where I think, am I correct, they got like seven, eight year prison sentences, something like that? Yeah, I think so far uh, one of the two defendants has been sentenced. The other is awaiting her sentencing, sentencing. And it was a, yeah, eight year sentence and I think over $3 million in restitution. Um, so you're right, it was very scary. I, sh I should go back and mention, just to be clear, that you are on our board, just to be totally transparent. Um, so that is related to what you were saying about wanting to help us out more. Um, For sure. But, but yeah, uh, I mean, I think you remember probably better than I do, Wayne, the way that um, starting in the late 90s and early aughts, um, this label terrorism mm -hmm. started to be used against animal rights and environmental activists. And um, that has not gone away. Um, yeah. It's still there. And now, in fact, um, it's part of you know the way that we punish people um, if they um, are found guilty of various uh, you know statutes. And I think there's a real question like, how this narrative became so pervasive. Um, I know that in the 90s, uh, in the environmental movement at least, I'm not as familiar with kind of the history of the animal rights movement, but there were some controversial tactics that people were using for a time, um, which the movement has kind of since repudiated and realized was a tactical mistake. Um, you know, there like were arson, some, for example. Like arson, mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, when people were trying to save forests, they were, like, spiking trees, which can be dangerous for loggers, things like that. That was a very kind of, like, white male contingent of the movement, I would say, mm -hmm. which is definitely not the way people uh, see things anymore. It was kind of uh, like a tough guy mentality, yeah, right? Where it's like, exactly. we're going we're gonna to fight you, and we're going to win you, like, <laughs> getting you in a fist fight, and we'll beat you up, you know? It's, it was weird. Yeah, yeah. You definitely saw that in the animal rights movement, too. 
Okay. There was, there was a yeah. contingent of, I mean, not to call it punks, because I have a lot of punks, and actually there's kind of a former punk? <laughs> former punk sitting right next to me who I love. But it was, to me, I don't know if you agree with this, Ronnie, I think it was very much a product of the punk scene at the time, too. There's like a masculine, hardline scene in the punk movement that was also very on board environmentalism and white taxes. Again, not count out anyone individually. I love you if you're punk. <laughs> yeah. That was part of it. Yeah. But it's interesting that you think the environmental movement has, has shifted away from that. I mean, do you think that, because there was this book that was just published, I think, about, you know, why we should blow up pipelines, basically. Um, I take it you agree that's not a counterproductive strategy. But I, I, I think that there's definitely well, been a shift. I, I just... Ahead. I do want to quibble with that a little bit. I mean, okay. I think every time I tell people that I uh, defend climate protesters, um, not every time, I'm exaggerating. A lot of times people will bring up this, you know, specter of like the protester who blows up a pipeline. pipeline yeah. um, and, you know, I suppose there may have been instances of people doing that. I don't know of any Nobody. personally. Yeah. I think it's really overblown kind of this image that is out there. And I think... Most people aren't interested in that, you yeah. know, because those are the kinds of dangers that this infrastructure already creates just by existing. Mm -hmm. You know, why go and kind of tarnish the <laughs> reputation of the movement, you know, by contributing to that and, and putting people in danger? Yeah. Um, and so at least the people that we work with, I'm not saying there aren't other people in the movement, but definitely the, the kind of center of gravity in the movement has shifted towards completely nonviolent strategies that don't endanger anyone. Property damage is sort of a separate thing. Mm -hmm. You can have reasonable people, reasonable people disagree about whether that qualifies as violence or not. Yeah. Um, but certainly endangering people is something that most people aren't willing to touch. Yeah, and I think that, that was different in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And it's funny because you asked the question, how did this specter of terrorism develop? And I think part of it was there was a different culture in, in both the environmental and animal rights movements in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts. Um, and, and for example, I mean, this campaign shack that my friends were a part of, like, that people who were convicted and in prison were themselves nonviolent activists. All they did was run a website, you know, and they ended up in prison for basically yeah. posting what other people did. Yeah. But there wasn't a culture of nonviolence in that movement. And so... And because they were, they took the philosophy that, hey, if anyone's doing activism against this company called Hunting the Life Sciences, which was this incredibly evil company that was vivisecting and torturing like hundreds or tens of thousands of animals. I don't remember the exact number, but in some really disturbing footage came out of them like vivisecting monkeys alive and pump, punching poor little beagle puppies in the face. Just some of the most awful footage you can imagine. But there was some violence. Like somebody hit Brian Cass over the head and fractured his skull, who was, I think, a board member of this company. And there were threats of pipe bombs and that sort of thing. And they post these things on the website. So even though they were not directly participating themselves, and in theory, they should have received the protection on the First Amendment they were supposed to get under Brandenburg. They didn't get it. They all went to prison. Or right. actually, six out of the seven went to prison. Or, you know, six of the, the key leaders in the movement. And now that's changed. But so th there was a cultural change. But even back then, you know, this is when I was getting started as an animal rights activist, it wasn't very common. It was very infrequent that these sorts of things would happen. And so the other explanation for why we have the specter of terrorism is active corporate manipulation. And I'll yeah. give an example of this. I don't know if you know this example, but it's a fascinating example of corporate manipulation. In the 1980s and 90s, you know, I think Michael Mann came out with this famous hockey puck study, which mm. is just right. not hockey puck. I know nothing about hockey, so I think it's hockey stick. Yeah, 
puck isn't, it doesn't right. make any sense for me. So the, the idea of the study was that there's a hockey stick. Basically, it's jumping up. There's this massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions correlated with increases in temperature. And Michael Mann is this very prominent professor, I think at Penn or Penn State or something like that. This is the late 1980s. And, and the science becomes really solid. Exxon and some of the big oil companies internally are looking at this research and basically internally all concluding, oh, this is real. <laughs> this is actually happening and we're screwed. So we've known basically about the threats for the last 30 to 40 years, since the late 1980s. And one of their first strategies was, let's tarnish and destroy the reputations of everyone who's advocating for this issue. And the, there's an ad, I think you can probably Google this and still find this. There was an ad they put out of the Unabomber, right? Ted Kaczynski, who was this guy who was sending bombs to all these different business people and just murdering people. Like him. He was a serial killer and he was... You know, living out in the woods, he was a mathematician. He went to actually one of these elite universities. I think he went to like Harvard or Berkeley. And he became, you know, kind of a radical anarcho-primitivist who lived out in the woods by himself and made bombs and blew people up. But the entire ad, from what I recall, and I, I could be getting this a little wrong because I don't recall it perfectly. And this is like probably late 1990s when I was just getting started as an activist. Um, it was just a picture of the Unabomber when he had, because he was just exposed in the late 1990s. A picture of the Unabomber and saying, I believe in climate change. That's it. Or something like that. Yeah. So this association with extreme violence and this person who's obviously you know, hated by everyone and everyone thought this person's a terrible person. We finally caught him, thank God, with the environmental movement. And, and for those who don't know about the corporate manipulation strategies that have been undertaken, environmental activists have been smeared and tarnished. And it's not just the fossil fuel companies, even companies like Uber, right, that are ancillary beneficiaries. Uber was exposed a couple years ago for hiring these like former CIA operatives to infiltrate environmental movements and smear their reputations, mm -hmm. right? And so, so part of it is a cultural shift you know, in the movements, which I think is the right one. And I think you and I agree that this shift towards nonviolence is, is really interesting and powerful and important. And um, I'd actually be curious as your thoughts on how that shift occurred and you know, why it occurred. But part of it also, part of it also is, is absolutely driven by corporate manipulation. And I think understanding that both should allow activists to respond more effectively to those smears when they come out and for, for us to recognize that some of the stuff that's out there about others in the movement could be spread by these powerful industries that know that if we have a debate on the facts, they're probably going to lose. I mean, Exxon conceded by the mid, mid to late 1990s, I think, or maybe even the early 1990s that climate change was real and posed an existential threat but you know they realized they couldn't win the debate on the facts so they had to go after the messenger instead um, but yeah it is weird it is weird that for a movement that's completely nonviolent, you still have you know all these laws being passed around the nation targeting environmental and animal rights activists as terrorists and even I think Joe Biden's recent domestic terrorism policy that he proposed you may know this better than I do I think it definitely included animal rights activists because everyone in the animal rights movement was like, oh my gosh, they're considering us potential domestic extremists. But I think it included environmental activists too. Is that right? Do you know that? I'm not familiar with the details of okay. that latest policy, but certainly even short of these kind of more bills more focused on terrorism, there has been an absolute surge of bills, especially after the George Floyd killing, but also before then, um, kind of upping the penalties for protests of all kinds, yeah. um, but especially... Uh, climate protests. Um, there have been a number of, um, they're called critical infrastructure bills. Critical infrastructure is kind of a misnomer. Um, you know, nobody thinks that a pipeline that's going to export 
90% of uh, the stuff it transports to another country is, is critical for, uh, for our national interests. But, but anyway, that's what these bills are called. And um, so that's been, you know, uh, really... And they basically increase the penalties when you damage critical infrastructure. Is that what most of these bills are doing? Yeah, yeah. They don't, for the most part, they don't create new offenses because all this stuff is already illegal. They yeah. just... They just drastically up the penalties. Um, in some cases, it may, they might create new like organizational liability provisions, for instance. Um, but it's been really devastating for these movements because um, it's happening most in, uh, of course, states that are governed by conservative politicians. And um, those are a lot of the same states where we're seeing big pipeline battles right mm-hmm. now. Um, and so it's... I think it really has kind of limited what the movement has been able to achieve. I mean, people are understandably afraid of getting hit with these um, draconian penalties. At the same time, um, there have been some favorable favorable resolutions to cases where these laws have, you know, you know, people have attempted to use these laws uh, for the first time. I think uh, there are really valid concerns about the constitutionality of some of them and mm-hmm, just. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of the willingness of prosecutors to expend their political capital on cases that and many times are nonviolent and involve some very well-meaning and sympathetic activists. So. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give me an example? I actually am not familiar with too many of these cases. Is there like a, a, a prominent example of one of these laws being used? And especially if it's been constitutionally challenged successfully. I, mean, I don't know if you know off the top of your head. Yeah. So I'm not going to have all the details. Uh, we have not ourselves worked on one of these cases, but there were some, um, again, because there just haven't been very many prosecutions yet, but there were some prosecutions in, I think, Louisiana um, that uh, have since been kind of resolved in in favor of the activists. I can't recall. I think maybe some of the charges were dismissed or or there were lawsuits. I know this is the case in South Dakota uh, where, you know, they challenged the constitutionality of one of those laws. Um, and and one on wow. that on those grounds, uh, First Amendment, I believe, um, and uh, so, I mean there have been a whole host of kind of legal question marks with these laws, but um, yeah, I mean the, so Louisiana is the one that comes to mind. I think I did hear something recently, but uh, I'm not going to be the best source of information on that. Yeah, and I think the argument in these cases is basically that you're punished just severely, not because of the quote-unquote crime that we committed, but because we have a particular political ideology, which, you know, going back to the founding of this country, freedom of expression, the idea you can't be punished for your beliefs, you can't be punished for your religion, your race, you know, was a foundational principle of this democracy that's been undermined by these laws that have been passed across the nation. Is that basically right about the argument they're making? Uh, No, I think the arguments are a little different. I think they're arguing uh, that... Basically, when in constitutional law, kind of you have to show that whatever law was passed um, is narrowly tailored to whatever interest the government is trying to protect. Uh, and so, if you pass a law that just like goes way beyond that and criminalizes people who might be uh, on someone's property uh, without even knowing that there might be a gas pipeline going underneath mm-hmm. them or something like that, um, that does kind of go beyond sort of what you need to do to dissuade people from, you know, tampering with these facilities. Um, And so there were different concerns. I mean, there was First Amendment concerns, there were due process concerns, because, again, you have to sort of be on notice about 
the fact that you might be violating a law. Hmm. Um, and so, again, I'm not going to be the best source of information about all of this, yeah. but um, uh, a, a number of constitutional issues. Yeah. So, the, you know, the interesting thing about these laws is that they pose incredible risk for movements for sure. And it's scary. Like, you know, that my friends who <laughs> were sent to prison for a few years in the mid, uh, the mid-aughts were punished under this law called the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, um, which then subsequently became, right after the case, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which is exactly this sort of law. It was a law that didn't actually criminalize any additional activity. It was just saying, by the way, if you target an animal enterprise, we're going to call you a terrorist and enhance your sentences so that instead of like a state-level criminal mischief prosecution, you get the power of the federal government against you. And the federal government has... You may know the statistics better than I do. I think they have like an over 90% conviction rate and they have essentially unlimited resources. Their U.S. attorneys are incredibly powerful and they can bring all the resources of the federal government against you. Um, and so, you know, when these people went to prison, it was devastating. It, was, it did a lot of damage to the movement. But very interestingly, those same laws have been crucial for the work I've done over the last five years in elevating attention to the issue because there's actually a Harvard Law scholar who probably wrote most eloquently about this in the context of the civil rights movement. It's this guy named Michael Claremont. Did you take any classes then? Did you know him at all? Was he's, he still at Harvard? He's a legend. Everybody yeah. wants to take, take his class, con law yeah. classes. Uh, <laughs> there's a very long wait list. I did not get off the wait list oh. when I was there. <laughs> so you, you know about his backlash thesis in the civil rights movement? No, I don't. Okay, so he, he's, he wrote this book, or maybe it was a paper. It might have been a law review article called The Backlash Effect. And the idea behind it was that Brown versus Board of Education, which is this famous civil rights case, right? I mean, everyone knows it. We all in middle school or maybe even elementary school that, you know, there are these kids of color who weren't allowed to go to the nice schools and, and the Supreme Court held that separate can't be equal. It was a reversal of this prior decision called Plessy versus Ferguson where they said, well, in theory, we have equal protection, but in practice, you know, as long as you're basically giving the same resources, you can actually segregate, you know, students of color from the white students. And then these activists challenge it and they win in the Supreme Court. And everyone thinks that Brown versus Board of Education changed the educational system. And what Michael Claremont argues is actually when you look at the details of what happened, Brown didn't actually change much <laughs> because no one complied with it. And that's why I think they had to go back to the Supreme Court, I think it was like three times, and keep going back. Like the, the winners of the original decision, these students were saying, hey, you know, you kind of ordered them to let us in the schools and we're still not allowed in the schools. And so the amount of desegregation that occurred directly because of Brown was pretty small from what I understand. And I'm very much probably butchering the argument that he makes because I read this paper a long time ago. What he says Brown's main effect was, was causing a backlash that there are all these state-level authorities who did all these ridiculous things, passing laws, physically assaulting and using the powers of law enforcement to assault, you know, black kids and their families who are trying to go to school. And that created kind of a sympathetic audience, right? People all over the country were watching these scenes unfolding in Arkansas where this little girl is just trying to go to school and you have to call out the National Guard. The federal government has to come mm -hmm. in because of the backlash. And so, you know, that contrast of, you know, doing and, and saying and trying to do and say what you think is right and just and then getting punished for it, right, was actually what really created change because what that did was it fueled people like King in the Montgomery protest. It fueled the lunch counter sit-ins in the, the early 1960s. And so, it was the backlash and the massive mobilization and the public sympathy that was generated from the backlash that actually created change. And so the point I'm trying to make is that when they come after you hard, which they did after Brown, I mean, they came after those kids. I mean, they were physically threatening them and 
some cases killing people, you know, like literally killing people just for saying, I want my kids to go to school. I want to be able to sit on the bus. I want to be able to sit at a lunch counter. I want to be able to vote, right? The civil rights movement very effectively harnessed that backlash by maintaining nonviolence in the face of all this oppression coming down on them to generate massive sympathy across the country. And that was what Michael Claremont says won civil rights for us. And I think that the environmental movement and animal rights movement now, you know, and this is one of the really powerful things about nonviolence, we have to maintain the moral high ground because if we are going to win over, all these ordinary people think like, oh, why would you ever do extreme things like protest? I mean, yeah, things are bad, but do you really have to break the law? Is, is we have to always maintain our composure and say, yes, we will bear this suffering gladly. And, and this is actually one of the core principles of Kenyan nonviolence, that you, you gladly bear suffering. Um, what was your first exposure to nonviolence? I mean, do you feel like you're a student of nonviolence? I mean, what is your affiliation with it? And um, I wouldn't say that I'm that, um, you know, well-versed in kind of the theory behind it. Um, I, you know, like I said, kind of got involved with the fossil fuel divestment campaign uh, at Harvard. Um, but I, but lately it's been on my mind a lot. Um, and I think what you're saying about kind of uh, the need to not fall into the trap of using the same tactics that the other side mm -hmm. is using um, is really key. Um, it's, you know, a lot of people actually have uh, reservations about arguing um, the necessity of defense, which I talked about earlier, um, for this very reason. Because hmm. as you're saying, you know, there's been a really long tradition in nonviolent movements to kind of just bear the consequences mm. and not, um, yeah. not fight back in any way uh, for the fear of looking to... Uh, belligerent or or unreasonable to sort of your average you know American mm -hmm. audience, um, but so the, just going to prison gladly. And the not necessity even trying defense to mount is the different, defense. Yeah, yeah, because you're really arguing. Actually, there was a justification for this, and I shouldn't have to go to prison for this. Um, I mean, it you know, for, not all of our clients are facing prison sentences. Sometimes it's just a misdemeanor, but um, you know, so there is a little bit of a difference in the philosophy there. I I think. Um, this is a little different of a subject than what you were asking me about, but I think oh, the, necess mm -hmm. the necessity of defense uh, is still powerful, you know, because yeah. it's it's really bringing the morality of these things into a courtroom, and it's being able to put on evidence about climate science and uh, how broken our democracy is right now and the history of civil disobedience, um, and it's putting that in front of a jury and then letting them decide. Um, so it has an educational function. Um, it's something that people really, really can rally around um, in a movement. Um, and it also, again, puts the ultimate decision in the hands of the jury, which is absolutely the way it should be in, you know, not having judges decide these cases. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that argument. I mean, I definitely buy the argument to the extent that you, if, if someone were to say, like, I'm going to make the argument for necessity and also I'm going to flee. <laughs> like if I get a prison sentence, I'm like, holy crap, I'm going to go to jail. Goodbye. I'm leaving. Right. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm out of this. But that's not what usually people do. I mean, they're, they're bringing the necessity defense in the spirit of cooperation, right? And right. cooperation in a deeper sense. Obviously, if someone's laying down on a train track, blocking a pipeline, they're not cooperators with this oppressive system. They're, they're very much activists who are trying to defy the rules. But to me, I mean, the entire point of direct action, the entire point of breaking the rules is to change them. 
And the necessity argument is making that argument in court, yeah. saying that we have to change the rules. And for people who aren't familiar with the common law, which, you know, if you're not a lawyer, you probably aren't, because <laughs> why would you be familiar with it? It's pretty boring. But the nature of the American and English legal system is that judges' rulings, at least if they're written opinions, actually are binding legal authority. They become the law of the land, right? Especially in the appellate court level. If you get to the appellate or Supreme Court, when they write these opinions, if they're published opinions, usually they're considered law in the same way that a statute, that a legislator would write. So if you get an appellate court decision like the Washington Supreme Court decision that, you know, climate activists just won, it was like, what, two or three weeks ago, that becomes the law of the land. So when you make this necessity argument, you know, you're not doing this just to evade punishment. You're doing this because you're trying to rewrite the laws by which the system operates. And if you can rewrite the laws, like if we can enshrine this defense, then suddenly that means every other activist who wants to go out there and block a pipeline is also entitled to that defense. You know, and that's where you start seeing a theory from a social movement perspective of shutting down this entire system and more importantly, transforming the world and moving towards a system that is not going to destroy our planet. So I, I don't buy that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think uh, different people have different motivations. A lot of people are interested, as you say, in kind of setting legal precedent and pushing this argument in the courts. There are other people who are just really motivated by the idea of being able to talk about why they mm -hmm they did their protest to a jury you know it's I think you alluded to this earlier it's just such an incredibly frustrating experience to go through this process of getting arrested you know deciding not to take a plea deal taking your chances going to trial and then the judge is basically muzzling you and saying you can only talk about the who what when where you can't talk about the why you yeah. know and that's like the whole crux of like well hello nobody's disputing the facts it's not like in a typical case where you know you're going to be objecting to the fact that you did xyz like in these cases people are admitting to what they did you know and so it's the whole game you know yeah. to talk about why yeah and it's it's so weird just uh, all these evidentiary rules in the legal system. I mean, first of all, I mean, anyone who's been through law school, as you and I have been through, we know that the evidentiary rules are just so arcane and often counterintuitive. Like all the different permutations of the hearsay rule, for example, it's like, how does anyone figure this out? Like, even yeah. if you're a trained lawyer, it's like, <laughs> if someone said something, but they said something and someone else repeated, you can't say it unless they're saying it to contradict a prior inconsistent statement. It's just, there's all these permutations that don't make sense to anyone, even lawyers. And, and understanding these rules is not it in in the inability of people to understand these rules is not just about you know what the legal system says oh we're just trying to be objective and to me it's also about like controlling what happens in a courtroom right controlling what is allowed in our legal system and and when people win these cases that expand what's allowed into the courtroom and allow and expand the evidence and our speech i mean it, it's it's a way of just expanding what's allowed period in our society you know it's a demonstration of the power we have to allow voices that haven't been heard messages that haven't been delivered to be heard and delivered right the courtroom is like a test case for society at large but i did want to ask you at least about two other things one is we've had some conversations about intersectionality and identity that i think have been really fascinating and the importance of the climate movement and other movements that i would say are often perceived as more privileged and maybe more white movements for them to really show solidarity with and in and and create real alliances with more genuine community identities because and what i mean by that is this 
environmental activist is not something you're really born into, right? You're not born an environmental activist. It's not really, it is an identity of a sort, but it's usually not an identity that's as deep as, for example, you know, being an Asian person in this country, where from the day I'm born, whether I like it or not, I'm an Asian person. People are going to perceive me that way. They're going to treat me that way. They're going to talk to me that way. My legal rights can be affected. Um, or being gay, where you know this is just who you are, and it's it's not a choice you make. It's it's not a political ideology. And I think one of the interesting things we've seen over the last couple hundred years is a lot of the identity-based movements have succeeded. You know, uh, women's suffrage, civil rights, LGBTQ rights. Why a lot of the kind of ideology-based movements or issue-based movements like environmental activism, um, economic inequality have failed. And I'm wondering if you can offer some thoughts as someone who's been, I mean, you were at Standing Rock, right? Uh, we Partially. were there for a time. I wouldn't. Time. Yeah. Okay, but you've seen, and Standing Rock was an example of, I think, a powerful intersection between the issue and identity. Uh-huh. But what, what are your, I mean, what do you think what do you think we can do better in terms of making sure that when we mobilize, whether it's for climate, for economic justice, or for animal rights, we're not disrespecting. And ideally, we're amplifying like this powerful sense of purpose that people have that comes from their genuine identities in their communities. You know? Yeah. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Sorry, that was a long-winded No, question. that's really, <laughs> that's such an important topic. I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, I think for the longest time, the environmental movement was seen as this thing that was separate from other movements. Um, so, you know, you had people talking about, you know, we talked about like more technological or economic solutions to various problems, um, certainly in the climate movement, but I think even in the environmental movement. And um, what's been so nice to see lately is the way that that's been shifting. Huh. Um, so the people who are talking about um, environmental or climate issues are some of the same people who are very worried about things like racial or gender justice. And, you know, they're not in separate silos anymore. Um, And I think that's something that gives me more hope than many other things, um, just because I don't think that you can really tackle the climate crisis without um, making it one and the same fight as these other fights that are going on. Um, I think that's true whether you look at it just from a sheer numbers perspective, like in terms of getting people into the movement and protesting and and caring about these things, but also um, because just on the substance of these issues, they're so interconnected. You know, mm-hmm. it's really hard to argue that um, something like pollution from a power plant isn't also a racial issue, issue. You know, Absolutely. Um, and so. Uh, that's that's a really really good thing um because the power plant that doesn't give a shit about the future also doesn't give a shit about the black community that's facing the pollution directly right yeah right exactly i mean and this this stuff goes back a long time um i wrote some blog posts for (laughs) they're a little ambitious for the format but i crammed a bunch of information into a couple of blog posts on these subjects that are on our website because this was a few years ago now, and I think these ideas are even more mainstream now than they were then. But just trying to collect all of the like thinking that people have done on the interconnections between things like climate and gender justice. First, that was the first one I wrote, and then climate and racial justice, um, because I think they're really deep seated um, and p- things that people don't talk about a lot are really important. You know, just the kind of 
even like the language that we use, mm. <laughs> um, you know, this idea of man, the conqueror, going back to the Bible mm. and using some of the same language to talk about women in the way that we talk about the environment, you know, like rape, defile, exploit, abuse, yeah. ravish, subjugate. These kind of verbs are very telling. Um, and I think uh, we need to examine <laughs> kind of how we, these kind of notions that don't come up explicitly a lot, but are underlying a lot of the way that we see the world. Um, and similarly with kind of climate and racial justice, you know, colonialism was such a racial project, you know, and it was as much of a kind of project about changing how the land is used uh, and changing landscapes uh, as it was about anything else. You know, Um, people were, these nations were kind of um, intent on extracting natural resources from the places they were colonizing. And they did that in ways that, um, you know, said a lot about what they thought of the the native people or were actively designed to undermine the native Mm -hmm, people. mm Um, everyone knows about kind of the example of the buffalo and Native Americans, depending on the buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other examples, too, involving, like, uh, forest management in India, things like that. Um, it's been a, a recurring theme. Um, and that stuff was all, you know, colonialism really got going around the same time. That, you know, we started uh, mining coal and, and taking fossil fuels out of the earth. Yeah. So people have called this kind of, like, an extractivist ideology, you know, this kind of way that it permeates all these different justice issues, um, this kind of mindset. And uh, I think that's really key and, you know, something that people need to talk about more. Yeah, I actually never heard that point before, but you're totally right. Colonialism basically got its start in these extractive industries. It was, you know, disrespecting the earth and treating the earth as a commodity was almost simultaneous to this philosophy and ideology of supremacy towards other human beings too and saying we're going to treat these human beings as commodities just go in there and and take everything and not care about them not care about the planet and not even care about our future and it's 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 a terrifying ideology but it's the ideology that's been animating at least the global west for the last couple hundred years and honestly the thing the single fact that to me makes clear that we have to take especially racial justice i won't say especially racial justice because i think all these issues obviously matter i think there's intersections or with gender violence and climate change, with economic injustice and climate change, but racial justice in particular, we've got to have a solution to racial justice simply because it is the global West and primarily, frankly, white civilizations that have contributed vastly, vastly, an overwhelming amount of the greenhouse gas emissions. While the global East and South, you know, in many ways, they're just getting started now. And so Mm -hmm. if we want to have a solution to climate crisis, we have to have a solution to that racial disparity and answer the questions of the Global South and Global East as to why now? Why, why do we have to bear this burden and stop our people from getting jobs or having these cars or burning this energy when you are the ones who created this problem, right? So if we don't have racial equity, there's no way in hell we're gonna get anyone in China or India or Sub-Saharan Africa or South America to get on board the solution because all they have to do is look at history and say, why should we accept this solution when you're the ones who got us into this problem, right? So racial right. justice is almost going to be a precondition to any meaningful climate justice solution globally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of what people mean, I think, when they say, you know, there's no climate justice without these other yeah. forms of justice. Um, and people have forgotten about that too much. Yeah. Um, I think gender justice, too, just because, you know, 
you need women to have a seat at the negotiating table. Absolutely. Um, this, this way that kind of men are so disconnected from their emotions uh, and, and women are disparaged from being too emotional is, I think, so key to this whole problem we're in. You know, I think you need to be able to uh, really feel your emotional connection to the land and yeah. to the landscapes. Uh, you can't value these things in the abstract. Um, I mean, maybe you sort of can, but I think you need to be able to uh, have an emotional relationship with a landscape or your history with a place yeah. in order to really understand their value and their irreplaceability. Yeah, and I don't want to get too essentialist about this, and so, and maybe I am, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I'm saying something that is too essentialist. But, and, and this is very much a stereotype, so maybe I shouldn't even say it, but it's in my head, so I'll say it anyways. Even the traditional paradigm of the hunter and the gatherer yeah. Right, the hunter is the man who goes out and kills something and brings it home, extracts a resource, takes something away from life on this earth. While the gatherer is something, someone who's nurturing, you know, who's planting seeds and growing something, right? And you know, obviously, like plenty of female hunters and plenty of male gatherers, and we don't want to be too essentialist and stereotyping. But there's something to those mentalities: one that's nurturing the earth and nurturing the ecosystem around us, and one that is literally killing something. Right, that, yeah. that needs to shift. <clears throat> and, and that's actually a great segue. Or did you want to jump in and say something about that? Because that's a great segue to my last question. Uh, only that, you know, <laughs> um, I think you're totally right. I, I think, you know, certainly the relationship between women and plants is a really mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. and important one. Yeah. Um, and something that uh, is one of the kind of key ways of addressing climate change and environmental problems. Uh, it's that traditional knowledge that people have, in, especially in the global south, um, which is being threatened by the spread of industrial agriculture. But, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and my last question to you is, is more of a, a prompt that I, I'm hoping you can comment on as a climate activist, who's also kind of been kind of witnessing, at least, and seeing animal rights actors a lot. And it's about you know, why the animal rights and the environmental movement haven't worked together more <laughs> the last, frankly, couple hundred years. And it's, it's really interesting because uh, most people don't know this. The animal rights movement is much, it's a much longer and older movement than the environmental movement. I mean, I think the environmental movement probably could say it's John Muir at the beginning of the 20th century and, you know, the Sierra Club going out to Yosemite. And actually at the time, even John Muir is famous for saying, you know, the greatest threat to these beautiful natural spaces, this thing we're trying to preserve at Yosemite, it's livestock. You know, they're destroying everything, and we have to stop this. But the animal rights movement goes back even further than that. In the United States, at least to the early to mid 19th century, when the first animal cruelty laws were passed, passed before domestic violence and, and mm -hmm. laws protecting children were passed. And mm -hmm. um, one of my former colleagues, whose name I'm totally forgetting right now, actually wrote a paper about this, and mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'll put it in the notes. Um, but even going back to ancient Greece, you know, you have really distinguished scholars like, you know, um, Pythagoras and Plutarch writing about vegetarianism and writing about the connection to the life around us. And in the last question I want to ask you is, I, I am of the belief system. One of the reasons, you know, my trajectory is I was actually a climate activist kind of first. And then I became an animal rights activist. And I still feel guilty about that in some ways because, you know, I mean, some people come to me and you've never done this and thank you for not doing this and say, why do you care about anything when our planet's burning and we're all going to be dead? But one of the reasons I shifted to animal rights is because I started believing that the fundamental root of the problem with the climate movement and frankly, a lot of the problems our political system is facing is this basic lack of empathy for those who don't have a voice. 
and don't have power, right? And future generations are obviously an example of this because if you're not in existence today, it's like, or even a kid, you know, if you're like a three-year-old kid and you're not going to have a home because London or Harvard are going to be underwater, you know, what are you going to do? You're three years old and it's going to happen 30 years from now. So what are you going to do? But animals are a prominent example of that too, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I, I've written a little bit about this and I'm going to develop this idea more. It's, I call it the moral stress test, that the true test of a political system's ability to tangle with justice and come out to right answers is how do you treat those who cannot have any political power? Right, because treating powerful people and wealthy people well—that's not really a definition of a just system, because that's true of every system. You know, mm. capitalism, feudalism, dictatorship—the people at the top are always doing well. The real test of justice and the real test of climate justice is how to treat those who don't have a voice and cannot fight. They cannot fight, or they don't have the power to fight. You know, effectively. Mm. And to me, the root—you know—the problem with industrialization, colonialism, the problem with the way we're treating the natural world now as this you know, dump for all this pollution is fundamentally about our inability to empathize with those affected by our actions because they don't have a voice uh, in our system and they don't have a seat at the table. And because animals, because of their intrinsic capacities and, and because they're just a different species that doesn't have the power that we have, will never have the sort of political power that even frankly, future generations are children because they're, you know, children are still part of our species. They can communicate with us in certain ways. But the polar bears who are drowning literally in the Arctic, you know, the, the ring weasels that are dying off from starvation in the United Kingdom, the literally hundreds of thousands of species are going extinct as we speak here today, right now because of climate change. They're never going to vote. <laughs> They're never going to become prime minister. They're probably never going to even really have anything like the political franchise that, or, or guardianship rights that you know, children or disabled people or, or future generations might have because they're different species. So one of the reasons I jumped to the animal rights movement was I thought for our political system really shift and start treating and start treating the issue of climate change and just start treating our stewardship of the natural world with some seriousness, we have to start giving some fundamental rights to other beings. Otherwise, the game is over. So my question for you is, I guess this, what do you think we can do as animal rights activists and what do you think we can do as climate activists to try and bring all these people who have dogs and cats in their households, all these people donate to the Humane Society, which is one of the biggest and most powerful NGOs on this planet. Like They have a budget nearly as high as the NRA. It's a huge, powerful organization that honestly doesn't do much radical climate activism, or really much climate activism at all. And, and similarly, how do we get like the climate activists to recognize that, hey, part of the problem is we're so disconnected from the other life on this earth that we need to transform the status of natural systems and the status of the other beings in these natural systems for us to get to the point where our political systems can adapt as effectively and as quickly as we need to. How do we get these two movements to come together? Um, I wasn't quite prepared to answer that question. <laughs> it's not uh, an easy question. I should have uh, done some pondering beforehand. Um, it's a big question, and I don't think that there is as much kind of pre-existing overlap between those two mm. moments actually as there is when I was saying before that justice movements have been coming together I was referring mainly to kind of racial justice yeah. and gender justice movements kind of seeing themselves as natural partners uh, with yeah. the climate and environmental movements um, but when it comes to animal rights I mean I don't know maybe there is more overlap than I know of just because I'm not moving in those circles um, but it's I no think- there's not <laughs> Okay. There's none. And it's really, right. really bad for both movements in my view. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no reason that 
you know, there are many connections between yeah. the two issues. Um, and so I wish I had a better answer for you. Um, but I think if if people can kind of get behind similar strategies and theories uh, that involve kind of nonviolent direct action, there is always going to be some natural affinity there mm-hmm. um, and respect for people in the other movement. Um, and I think one one thing that's actually problematic about the climate movement is something you alluded to earlier, this kind of climate exceptionalism. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's a good thing when people say, you know, why people shouldn't worry about anything except climate because it's like yeah. the single most important issue facing us because I just don't think that you can make those distinctions um, and and kind of not not look at the other interconnected issues but um, but yeah I mean to the extent that people can kind of uh, see themselves as being part of one larger struggle um, and understand kind of the uh, the ultimate causes that are yeah. behind really behind both movements yeah uh, that's helpful yeah I, mean, I almost think that there's this famous quote by Lord Acton I don't know if you know this quote and it, it kind of explains all movements and it's power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely <laughs> you know and yeah. all these all these movements are about challenging an abuse of power that there's and not even particular individuals it's almost systems because even a corporation like Amazon, you know, I don't, Jeff Bezos just gave, I don't know how many billions of dollars, $5 billion to fight climate change. And I'm sure he in his heart, cause he's got kids and he probably wants a future for his kids. I mean, maybe he'll be rich enough to fly to Mars. <laughs> so his kids will be okay. But I think he genuinely does care about climate change while Amazon has been a huge contributor. And I mean, their own employees have walked out because the company's not doing enough and is still doing work for fossil fuel companies. So it's like, even Jeff Bezos is trapped by this system where the power structure says what matters is making as much money as possible, no matter the damn consequences for anyone, you know, human being, animal, future generation. And until we realize that power structure is victimizing all of us, right? We can't solve the problem. And when you think about it that way, then all these movements are deeply connected and instrumental to each other. But I don't know. Um, any other things that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? Cause I blabbed a lot and I, Spewed a lot of questions to you, but what do you think is most fascinating that about the climate movement or beyond that we haven't gotten a chance to speak about? I think we pretty well, pretty well covered it. Um, okay. I hope that these two movements can come together more in the future. Um, I think people, you know, are often just sort of like all their time is taken up with yeah. these very real struggles that they're in, and there's a little bit of a burnout or fatigue that happens. Um, and, uh, so that may be part of it too, but yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Well, let's make it happen. And I think conversations like this are a great start. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. Um, thank you for sharing some of your thoughts on the climate movement, which I think are really important for folks, not just who are climate activists, but folks who are just supporters of more aggressive change on climate change to understand what's happening and how much people are risking Mm -hmm. like George Taylor. And, and I hope everyone supports the Climate Defense Project. So uh, check out the website. Full disclosure, I'm on the board. I am on the board, but I don't get paid or anything. I just <laughs> sit there and usually give Alex bad advice, which hopefully they don't listen to. No. I mean, I think I've given you some good advice over the years. Probably not too much. But honestly, they're doing such a great job. And, um, and I think this is the cutting edge. This is the cutting edge of the climate movement. So 
follow their stuff, support their, their work and the activists they defend. And, and let's not just hope for it. Let's make change happen. Okay? Thanks, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it was a great conversation. I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I hope you do something to support the climate movement and help all these movements come together, as Alex and I discussed. But I also want to thank the people who help support me in this podcast. Lonnie Rose has been you know, the key figure, frankly, behind this podcast and was sitting right next to me recording while we spoke. Crystal Heath, Julie Waldrup, Shalola Lafakis, and others have been playing huge supportive roles behind the scenes. Uh, Louis Bernier has also helped out on a number of occasions. So this is a real team effort. And if you like what you heard today, please share it with a friend. Thanks, everyone.